Welcome to the studio with Christoph Milechuk. This is the first episode that I am recording after being fully vaccinated. This is very exciting for me because it means that I can start kissing women again. Today is May 23rd, and in the past couple days, there have been some exciting events. Two days ago, May 21st, was my birthday. I turned 24. That means that I am no longer in my early 20s. I am in my mid-20s. Then yesterday, May 22nd, was Bitcoin Pizza Day. On May 22nd, 2010, the first ever cryptocurrency transaction took place. A programmer, Laszlo Hanyech, paid 10,000 bitcoins in exchange for two pizzas. What a historic day. So, in order to celebrate this, this day, because I'm, I'm in the crypto sphere, I have some investments in some coins. Personally, I'm pretty big into Cardano, neither here nor there. This is not financial advice, but definitely buy some Cardano. So I go to the pizza parlor to pick up my pizza in honor of Bitcoin Pizza Day. And as I'm paying, the cashier says to me, Hey man, has anyone ever told you that you look like modest Yahoo? Uh, the answer to this is no, primarily because I don't think anyone in my peer group has ever heard of modest Yahoo. Certainly I had not heard of modest Yahoo. So I say, no, I, I've never received that comparison before. Who is modest Yahoo? He says he's actually a, a Jewish-American reggae singer. Now, that's, that's a combination. So I pull up Modest Yahoo on my phone, and aside from the fact that he's about two decades older than me and has gray hair and dreadlocks, mm, there's actually not really much similarity. Maybe a bit in the nose. I could see a bit in the nose. If someone were to take a look at me, look at my face, and they, they completely neglected my hair, my fine, straight, uncurly hair. They were to just look at my face briefly. They might come away thinking, hmm, especially if they concentrated a bit more heavily on my nose. They might think, hmm, there might be a bit of Jew in that guy. Now, although to the best of my knowledge and the best of my family's knowledge, there is no Jew in me whatsoever, I will concede that my nose is maybe slightly rabbinic. Might make you think a bit of a rabbi. Maybe it's a bit large in some of my other facial features. So I, I understand the comparison. I'm, I'm not mad at the comparison to Modest Yahoo. But recently, recently, I've been getting some comparisons to, to Andy Samberg, who was another Jew. I'm just being compared to Jews left and right. And this is totally fine. Look, I get the comparison with Andy Samberg. We have very similar noses, and he's a very talented artist, I guess you could say. But now I'm, now I'm wondering what's next. What are the next comparisons going to be? So getting a lot of Andy Samberg, I got Modest Yahoo. Thinking, hmm, next might be Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, Jewish, Jewish American comedian, maybe uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. That's a powerful figure. Maybe even Barbara Streisand. Anyway, all of these Jewish figures, these prolific Jewish figures, whom I may or may not resemble, this, this brings me very nicely, it segues very nicely into the first ad read of the day. Yes, today the studio with Christoph Malachuk has a sponsor. 
And frankly, I was feeling a bit iffy about accepting the sponsorship. I'm not so sure if my actual beliefs align with uh, what this sponsor is trying to promote, but they're paying me a lot of money. And I've talked a bit about reading Nietzsche, the importance of constructing your own morality, which I have done in certain ways and that I try to adhere to. And I would like to be the most moral person I can and develop my own moral framework, not adhere to that of society. But I am going against those lessons today because I am taking this ad read. I am taking the cash and I am going to just be, I'm just going to read the ad. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. A message to our neighbors. We fire back. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. Shalom. All right. That wasn't too bad. That wasn't too bad. Didn't feel good. It felt kind of slimy. felt kind of dirty. It's a bit of a controversial time. I, I, I don't think... I don't think Israel is super popular right now. I'm not sure that I love everything that's going on there right now. But I, I, kind, of, I kind of get why they tried to, to get a sponsorship on, on this podcast. I'm actually, if I really think about it, maybe not so different from Israel. Some people, they, they gravitate towards me and they gravitate towards this show because I say things that they can't. I say things that uh, might be a bit inflammatory, that might be a bit provocative, not with the intent to provoke, just with the intent to, to say what's true or to say something that's, that's funny. But people might think it's a bit too edgy, a bit too controversial, but they like what's being said. And that's why they like me and that's why they like the studio. Now, that's not everyone. That's a certain subset of people. But they can't say these things because they think, oh, they're, they're concerned about what their friends will think, what their colleagues will say, etc. Now, picture this. I would like to, to paint an allegory right now. Let's say you're an adult because this podcast is catered towards adults. We don't have child listeners. So you're an adult and there's a toddler trying to attack you. And this toddler, this toddler hates you. This toddler has hated you since it was a, a small baby and it's never stopped hating you and it's hating you more and more every day. It's hated you since its birth and it wants to destroy you. Now, this toddler is, it's attacking you. It's, it's spitting on your leg. It's punching your thigh. The toddler is clawing at your calf and stomping on your foot. You get the idea. The toddler is trying to do everything that it can to hurt you, to destroy you, and to tear you down. But the toddler isn't harming you. The toddler is weak. Its attacks are nothing. And you can easily defend yourself. But this toddler is trying to attack you and kill you every single day. Almost every minute of every day. Even when the toddler isn't physically punching you, assaulting you. You know the toddler wants to do that. Maybe it's just recovering. Maybe it's strategizing. But the toddler wants to kill you. And how can you teach this toddler a lesson? Well, I mean, if you hit the toddler, that would be... That would be awful. That would be frowned upon by everyone. The whole community would think you were a monster. Because despite the fact that this toddler is clearly so malicious towards you, if, if you were to, to harm something so defenseless, so weak, 
you you would look like a monster, and, and, and rightly so. When there's an imbalance of power, the person, the entity that is more powerful has a responsibility to constrain it, to, to restrain itself and to, to mitigate the force that is used. But really, what, what do you think is going to send the, a message to this toddler? I mean, it's not listening to, to your kind words or to the words of the other adults around. Maybe you could just kick the toddler in the face. Then it might be docile for a few months. It might, it might take a, a step back. I mean, it'll cry. It might have a bit of a broken nose. Hopefully not a cracked skull or anything, but it'll be in pain and it might need to regroup and it might need to, to think a bit, but at least the toddler will stop attacking you for a bit. But you can't kick the toddler in the face and, and you know this, it would be extremely cruel. But every night when you go to bed, you fantasize about kicking the toddler in the face. It would just teach it a lesson, it would feel so good. You would never do this, but you fantasize about it. Now in this situation, let's pretend that Israel is the adult and Palestine is the toddler. Well, in these past couple weeks, what has Israel done? Israel has given a nice roundhouse kick to the face of the toddler. Not enough to kill it, but enough to damage it in a pretty severe way. Israel did what it wanted. It fantasized about kicking the toddler in the face, and it did kick the toddler in the face. And was it inhumane? Uh, quite possibly, yes, but it still did it. That's why you might be able to draw some similarities between me and Israel. Not because I support its foreign policy in any way, shape, or form. Let me make that very clear. At this time, I don't have a stance on it, although I certainly don't think my stance would involve the bombing of civilians, despite the fact that I accepted the Israeli government's money as a sponsor on this podcast. That's why I feel I have to go into this little, into this little spiel. I don't want to be taking the money from the sponsor and then not making it clear that I uh, might not really endorse everything they do. I just need to read their lines and I'll get paid. Uh, so anyway, so I, I say the things that people want to say but can't. And if people were in Israel's shoes, Israel is doing the things that those people would fantasize about doing but couldn't. So we both take life by the balls. That's what Israel does and that's what I do. And that's probably why they chose to sponsor the studio with Christoph Malachuk. So a big thank you to Israel's Ministry of Defense. So last night, after I ate my pizza, I was feeling tired, both physically and mentally, and I decided that I would go out onto my front porch and I would read a book and in, in the evening I would read, I would go to bed early. So I go out on the porch, I open up my book, and what do I hear? I hear some music. Not too far in the distance, pretty close, and I, I see some silhouettes milling about just uh, one block away from me in, in one of my neighbor's yards. Now, I don't know this neighbor, I, I didn't know what was going on, but it was abundantly clear to me that there was a house party going on. Now, this is a Pavlov's dog situation. Ivan Pavlov, a Russian physiologist, trained his dog to salivate at the sound of a bell because he associated, he made the dog associate the sound of the bell with a meal. 
So instead of salivating when the dog was presented with food, there was a, a link that was formed in the dog's brain between the sound of a bell and the food, such that just the bell alone would cause the dog to salivate. This is an example of classical conditioning, and you would learn about it in any Psychology 101 course. Now, I am also the victim of classical conditioning, such that when I hear a house party going on, I have the almost uncontrollable urge to go to it. So I'm trying to take an easy night to just be good to my physical health and my mental health, just reading, going to bed early. But I hear the sounds of this house party and I know that I have to go. So I read a few pages of my book, but I'm struggling to be present. My, my whole psyche is just chanting to me, house party, house party, Christoph, you have to go. You have to go to this party. So yeah, it, it was clear. I, I didn't read too much, set the book down, got changed into some nicer clothes, and I head over. I don't know these people at all, but I'm their neighbor. How could they not want me at their party? So I get there, and I'm, I, it's, a, it's an outdoor party. They have a DJ action, like legit turntables and big speakers and everything in, in the yard. And I go, and almost immediately, some, some guy, he, uh, he turns to me, and he's like, Hey, man, do you know where there's a sink? And I'm like, Man, do you want to walk 70 meters to my house and use my sink? He's like, yeah, man, that's so nice of you. So there had been some painting going on at this party, and this guy got some paint on his fingers and needed to, to wash his hands. So this was perfect. Now I have a connection at the party. So he washes his hands in my sink. He admires my collection of books, which is great. And we go back to the party, and I, I just fit right in. I'm milling about. I'm in my natural environment. People feel at home in different places. Some people feel most at home when they're curled up on their couch in front of a fire reading a book. Some people are most at home in the middle of the forest hiking. Some people are most at home when they're flying down a ski hill. Some people are most at home in the peace and quiet and calm of the desert. Some people are most at home relaxing on a beach. I am most at home at house parties. That's where I just feel like I am in my element. I transcend my ego and I become one with the party. I am the party. I'm not at the party. I am the party. And that's why I'm drawn to parties. It's it's less of maybe a, a classical conditioning like I was saying earlier, more just like I'm being called home. I'm being called to where I belong. But this party was cool. I stayed there for a few hours. I met the people who live there, so I'm now friendly with my neighbors. Uh, I met a mycologist. By mycologist, I mean someone who grows and sells psilocybin. I met a Buddhist. I, I met a, a girl on Molly. It was strange to me how many people there were on Molly. Molly, MDMA, ecstasy. It's a a stimulant. It's actually psychedelic adjacent in terms of some of its effects, but it's not a, a true psychedelic, but it's the type of drug that you would expect people to take at a, at a big party environment, maybe at a music festival or at a Las Vegas club or, or somewhere where you're being overwhelmed with environmental stimuli, not just a little chill backyard party with this DJ playing indie beats in Boulder, Colorado. 
Anyway, I guess these people were having a, a fun time. They, they tried to start a, a dance floor and it, it failed uh, primarily because I think their coordination efforts were hindered by the fact that they were on Molly. I probably spent a more significant portion of the party talking to this Buddhist woman that I met there. I'm, I'm on a spiritual journey, but not super far along. Certainly closer to the beginning than to the end. Far closer to the beginning than to the end. And I think delving into Eastern thought and philosophy and religion is, is certainly an, an avenue that I would love to explore and that I intend to explore and that I am exploring more right now. So to be able to talk to someone, she, she just got her master's in, in Buddhist studies. So that was, that was expansive. That was good for the brain. Having this discussion about love and presence and awareness right next to a bunch of people on Molly trying to start a dance floor, very wholesome. This just reinforced why I go to house parties. And I've been going to, to numerous house parties lately. It's, it's been fantastic. I was in a bit of a house party drought, but my neighbor across the street, who I do actually know, he just graduated and he invited me to some parties that were uh, surrounding his graduation. And I mean, one of these parties was, was pretty sweet. I, I didn't know anyone there. I'm milling around. I meet people. It's, it's great. And then suddenly, like, oh, let's, let's go upstairs. So I, I go upstairs with a group of people, and lo and behold, everyone's doing cocaine. That's how you know you're at a good house party, when there's cocaine around. Molly, no, that's not a good house party. That's just people who think they're at a music festival and aren't really in the right environment. But a good house party, a gritty house party, that has some cocaine. Now, look, let me be clear. I, I did not partake in cocaine. I mean, I'm, I'm not in finance. I'm not in business school. I don't, I don't do cocaine. It's not my shtick. I don't think it's super healthy. I mean, totally fine if you do cocaine. However, I certainly would uh, advise you to take precaution against it. I think it's not very good for the circulatory system, and I think it can have some damaging short and long-term effects. So, whereas I don't want to do cocaine, I do want to be at parties where others are doing cocaine, because that means that by default, it's a good party. Now, this segues very nicely to a correction that I need to issue from episode number eight, hashtag Stop Asian Hate. That's a good title, also a good episode. In that episode, I've been talking about a rap lyric from Benny the Butcher. In his rap, he had said, I take a nine out of a brick and repackage it. Now, I, being a bit inexperienced with how cocaine is packaged and sold, had thought that maybe he had been smuggling a gun in this brick of cocaine, that's what the nine was, and then he had taken the gun out and repackaged it. But one of the listeners of the studio submitted some feedback. Uh, this listener, his name is Duke, and I trust him heavily with his correction because he has been in jail, in prison, for one year on nonviolent drug charges. He was trafficking drugs across state borders and, and got caught. Crazy story. I'd love to have Duke on sometime to talk about some of his life. But anyhow, this very knowledgeable uh, listener, this expert, informed me that no, he, when he's taking a nine out of a brick, the nine isn't referring to a gun, it's referring to nine grams of cocaine. 
Benny the Butcher is siphoning off a bit of the product to keep for himself and probably replacing that nine grams with something else that weighs roughly the same amount, just taking a bit of cocaine for himself. On top of being a subject matter expert, Duke is my former neighbor. He just left my neighborhood a few weeks ago to go start a healing retreat in New Mexico. And whereas I didn't know Duke for a meaningful amount of time, he had quite a profound impact on me. And I'd like to talk a bit more about Duke. But before I do, we have a message from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. A message to our neighbors. Don't start something that you can't finish. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. Shalom. Right across the street from me, there are two trailers that people live in. These very small homes. They're not trailers that you can move anywhere. They're, they're permanently installed. They have plumbing. They have electricity. But they, they are trailers nonetheless. And I had never talked to the people who lived in these trailers, but I, there was one guy who, who lived there with his, his girlfriend, and he was really friendly, projected a really nice energy, and, and he would wave at me when, when I would be walking by, and I would wave at him. But we, we had never uh, talked to each other. A few weeks ago, I'm uh, just walking around my neighborhood, and I see a sign that's pointing to his uh, trailer, and it says, Moving Sale. I said, oh, wow, the, he's, he's moving out of his trailer. Let me, let me go introduce myself. Let me say hi. Because he had always just been, a, struck me as being a, a nice guy who I'd never gotten to talk to. So I, I go over to his little garage sale there, and he instantly recognizes that I'm his neighbor. And we start talking, and, and then he invites me inside of his trailer because I, I said I'd be interested in seeing him. And then we end up talking in his trailer for like three hours. We form this really rapid connection. He's moving to New Mexico to start a healing retreat with his girlfriend. So, wow, that's, that's so interesting. So we talked a bit about his spiritual journey and about his past life. And, and he has some crazy stories. This adrenaline junkie who had lived his life all about instant gratification. What's going to give him the most pleasure at that exact moment? whether it's a dangerous activity or taking drugs or an extreme sport. And then as he got older, he, he matured and, and maybe through actually taking some missteps, he, he learned some hard lessons about the importance of delayed gratification and sacrificing the present for the better of the future, understanding that you're a being that lives across time, so you can't just give yourself maximal pleasure now because the future you depends on your actions of the current you. So Duke uh, and I probably hung out maybe for like eight hours that day. So we were in his trailer for a bit, helped him with the yard sale, pick up a table. He came over that night to watch UFC. But the thing is, uh, th that was a Saturday that I met him and he was moving away nine days later. On a Monday, so we had a 10-day relationship. So we texted a bit back and forth. Uh, we, we saw each other a couple more times that week, and I even dog sat for him on the on the weekend that he was leaving. And that was really neat for me, because I, I never looked after a dog before. I had actually never even walked a dog by myself before, and I had to do that. And I, I fed the dog, and that the dog stayed at my house. And it was yeah, obviously it was. Just such a small snapshot of what being a dog owner is and what having a being depend on you is. 
but it was a, a really neat and great experience for me. And I was, I was happy to do that for Duke. And right before Duke leaves, he comes and he gives me a book. The book is called Be Here Now by Ramdas. I hadn't heard of the book, but I'd heard of Ramdas. I knew Ramdas to be a Western academic turned Eastern philosopher, or at least a practitioner of some of the Eastern religious philosophical based traditions. Duke told me the story as to why he gave me this book. He was from New Hampshire originally, and he, he was studying in, in university in New Hampshire. And he was on the lacrosse team, a, a bit of a jock. He hung out with the boys, you know, a real guy's guy. But there was also another side to Duke, and sometimes he would hang out at this, this uh, like hideout across campus, just this more of a chill place where the vibes were a bit different, the people were a bit different. And he had a friend there named Benny. Now, Benny was a legitimate hippie. He wasn't a hippie in the obnoxious way or in the, oh, I'm in like university, I'm going to act in this certain way. It was really authentic. So he, he didn't wear shoes. He was a vegan. He had long hair. He acted out of love, had a lot of care, had a lot of control over how he was behaving and just seemed very at peace. This is, this is Benny. Now, Duke and, and Benny were, were friends, and, and one time uh, Duke is hanging out at this kind of more like hippie hangout on campus, and Benny comes up to him and says, hey, hey, Duke, aren't you on the, the lacrosse team? Duke says, yeah, Benny, that's right. Like, what about it, though? And Benny says, well, you know, not, not many people like you hang out over here, but you're totally welcome, but it's just interesting. So there was something about Duke that was a bit different, a bit more maybe open to this other way of thinking. Duke is in his 30s now, so this story is taking place in the 2000s. But back in 1971, there was this book published called Steal This Book. And Duke was pretty interested in reading it, but he wasn't able to find it at any bookstores. As a result of the name of the book, it was getting stolen and it wasn't really easy to get one's hands on a copy. So Duke thought, you know, maybe Benny, he's a real literary guy. He might know someone who has this book or he might have the book. So Duke goes up to Benny and he says, hey, Benny, I'm looking for this book. It's called Steal This Book. Do you think you would know someone who has that or you might be able to get it for me? Benny says, yeah, Duke, actually, I, I think uh, I do know someone who has that and I'll be able to get it to you. And yeah, yeah, just give me a few weeks. So Duke says, okay, like he didn't have too much faith that Benny would be able to, to get this book to him, but he thought, okay, it's, it's worth the shot. It would be awesome if Benny does get it to me. So a few weeks go by, and Duke is crashing for some period of time on some girl's couch in a, in a dorm on campus, and there's a knock at the door, and he, he opens it, and it's, it's Benny. And he says, oh, hey, Benny, what's, what's going on, man? Like, what are you doing here? And Benny says, Duke, I found the book that you were looking for. Duke says, no way, man, that, that's awesome. Like, I, I didn't think you'd be able to find it. Then Benny gives him a book, but it's not steal this book. It's a totally different book. It's a book called Be Here Now. And Duke says, Benny, like, man, this, this is not the book that I, that I was uh, like asking about. 
But he says, no, 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 this, this is the book you were looking for. He says, no, like, this is not the book I wanted. This is not what I was, was looking for. I wanted a different book. Benny says, no, Duke, this is the book that you were looking for. And Duke's thinking, like, what is wrong with this Benny guy? But, like, he knew that Benny was just, uh, like, tried to get him a book and was doing a really nice thing. So Duke says, all right, Benny, th thanks so much. Uh, th thanks for the book. I'll, I'll see you later. So then... Duke leaves the place, tosses the book in the back of his pickup truck. It's an open truck bed, and he's just—he's leaving the book there for uh, for a few days. A couple weeks go by, and he hasn't touched the book. He never brought it inside. It was always to him just ah, like it's a bit of an inconvenience. Like Benny just gave me this book I, I didn't even want. But one day it looks like it's about to rain, so Duke brings this book inside with him. And he's a bit hungover, and it's after class, and he's like, ah, what the heck, I'll just crack it open. And he starts reading the book, and he gets enraptured by it. And it was really speaking to him, and, and it had this, this profound effect. And Duke told me that this, this was the beginning of his spiritual journey. This book had this big impact on him, and, and he realized that Benny was right. It wasn't the book that he asked for, but it was the book that he was looking for. So as Duke's parting gift before he left to New Mexico, he gave me a copy of Be Here Now. Ram Dass, the author of Be Here Now, is an American academic turned spiritual guru. His original name was Richard Alpert, and he was a young and promising researcher in the field of psychology. He graduated with a PhD from Stanford, then he taught at Stanford, he was hired as an assistant professor at Harvard, and then he went to UC Berkeley as a visiting professor. So he's working at these top institutions, doing very well, looks like he has a tremendous career ahead of him. Despite Ram Dass's success, he was actually pretty neurotic and unhappy. He became friends with Timothy Leary, uh, another one of his colleagues at Harvard. And Timothy Leary was pretty interested in psychedelics and in particular in psilocybin. So Ram Dass took psilocybin with Timothy Leary. And when he took it for the first time, he experienced this form of ego death where he realized that there was so much more to life than this constructed identity that he had given himself and that there was a better way to live than continuing to work his way up the corporate ladder into the upper echelons of the academic elite. So as a result of this experience and then some subsequent experiences, Ram Dass pivoted his field of research towards psychedelics and psilocybin and LSD and exploring their impact on people in, in clinical trials. So he and Timothy Leary are actually responsible for some of the seminal work in the field of psychedelics. This was all taking place in the early 1960s. And during this time, he was also consuming psilocybin himself, along with a small group of his colleagues at Harvard. This is actually a, a passage where Ram Dass is trying to explain the difficulty of relaying these profound states to those who haven't experienced them themselves. To him who has had the psychedelic experience, no explanation is necessary. To him who has not had the psychedelic experience, no explanation is possible. 
So Ram Dass and his, his colleagues were having these profound experiences about the ego and its dissolution and about understanding that there was this oneness that existed that was transcendent and that they could maybe tap into when they were when they were tripping off of mushrooms or off of LSD. But as they became more and more familiar with this space, it became less and less possible to explain it to others. So Ramdas is getting deeper and deeper into the psychedelic research and also into exploring psychedelics himself. But what is bothering him the most and what is leading him to almost a state of depression and despair is that no matter how high he goes up, no matter how profound and deep his trip is and how close he gets to God and how close he gets to becoming one with the universe, it always slips away as he comes down off of the drug. So for one three-week period, he was ingesting 400 milligrams of LSD every four hours to try to get into that state permanently. But just a few days after this three-week period ended, he was just back to baseline. It was crushing for him. He was becoming God through the psychedelics, but he couldn't maintain that state. Ramdas and Timothy Leary were both let go from Harvard in 1963 for activities surrounding their psychedelic pursuits. A few years go by and Ramdas decides to go to India to try to get a better understanding of what this state is that he achieved. He thought he would go to Indian gurus and he would give them LSD and he would ask them how he could stay in that state. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. He ended up meeting some enlightened beings, as he described, people who he could tell were in that state of being one with the universe. And they became his teachers. He joined this little colony and got on the path to enlightenment, so to speak, himself. Through his studies of Tibetan Buddhism and affiliated practices, he was able to ultimately live in these states that he had only achieved briefly with the help of psychedelics, he was able to stay in them permanently. He was able to transcend the ego in the absence of these substances and, and live in that state of love and bliss that he had been ch chasing. So Ramdas then became a spiritual teacher himself. I've read Be Here Now twice so far, once very thoroughly and once I skimmed through it. It's a really interesting book, very captivating. It's as though it's written directly to you. One thing that makes the book so powerful is that Ram Dass himself was a non-religious Westerner, and this book is almost targeted towards people of a similar background. So it has the ability to resonate as he understands fairly well the spiritual background of so much of the West. If I could be so bold as to offer a summary of the book, Ramdas is encouraging the reader to enter into a state of presence, but beyond that, a state of unity with the universe, to understand that all the answers lie within and that we're constantly looking outwards and looking for validation from other places and for answers to our questions by searching and traveling but really to become truly at peace and even beyond uh, being at peace to transcend, to live in a state of bliss and ecstasy, 
one needs to look inwards. And if you do that, if you truly surrender, if you let go of all attachment, you can realize that you are God. I understand how this can sound pretty nutty. Even two years ago, I would have had about zero time for any book that had a similar synopsis. But one thing that I think is really interesting about Be Here Now is regardless of your initial ideas coming into it, it's hard to put down after starting. Even if you think everything is totally wacky, you kind of just are, are drawn in. And I think it's as a result of the total sincerity of the writing. Whether you think Ramdas is a spiritual genius or a total nutcase, it's fairly hard to deny that he's writing as honestly as possible with the intent to create the best outcomes in his readers' lives as possible. If you're wondering whether or not you should read this book, I think you probably should. If you're not wondering whether you should read this book, if you think this sounds absolutely nuts, yeah, you, you probably shouldn't read it. But if you have a bit of interest in this, I, I would recommend it. At the very least, it's thought-provoking. I'd like to read some of the passages of this book, some snippets that stood out to me a, a bit more that might illuminate some of the fundamental themes of this work. So here are some excerpts from Be Here Now by Ram Dass. Become one with the universe. All the energy passes through you. You are all the energy. And it all resides in your heart. If you can go within to your spiritual heart, you will know that you are He. It is only when you reside quietly in your own heart that you become He of total light, unbearable compassion, and infinite power. Who's adventurous enough to want to go on that journey? Do you realize when you go on that journey, in order to get to the destination, you can never get to the destination? In the process, you must die. You must die. The whole trip I'm talking about is fraught with paradox, the most exquisite paradox. As soon as you give it all up, you can have it all. How about that one? As long as you want power, you can't have it. The minute you don't want power, you'll have more than you ever dreamed possible. What a weird thing. As long as you have an ego, you're on a limited trip. And an aside, that was what was preventing Ramdas from staying in that pure state of, of unity with the universe when he was taking psychedelics. It's that he still had an attachment to his ego. It was in relinquishing all attachment that he was able to let go of his ego and stay in that state of bliss. Let me continue to quote some Ramdas. Surrender. What are you giving up? A hollow little trip that's good for another 40 years at best? You're giving it up for eternal union with pure energy and pure light. Because surrender means you no longer die. It's as simple as that. That's what it means. Because you that lives and dies is ego. And fear of death only comes through the brittleness of the ego. Total surrender. Total surrender. There's no more you, no more life and death. 
So here's another aside. Ram Dass was talking about how even when he was further along in his journey in India, he was still having trouble relinquishing his desire, his attachment for food. Because back in the U.S., especially when he was younger, he had a, a lot of trouble with gluttony. He would eat until he was stuffed and derive so much pleasure from, uh, from these oral sensations. So Ram Dass was talking about how he was almost frustrated that he, even at a certain point in his journey, he wasn't able to give up this desire for food. So this is back to the book. At last, I had to confront myself and see where I wasn't. You've got to go at the rate you can go. You wake up at the rate you wake up. You're finished with your desires at the rate you finish with your desires. The disequilibrium comes into harmony at the rate it comes into harmony. You can't rip the skin off the snake. The snake must molt the skin. That's the rate it happens. Another aside, that's meaning that you can't be chasing this enlightenment. The enlightenment comes at the pace that it comes, and the more that you're chasing it, the more that you're delaying it. It's the surrender that allows you to achieve it, according to Ram Dass. This is one of my favorite passages that explains being here now. At this moment, if you set the alarm to get up at 3.47 this morning, and when the alarm rings and you get up and turn it off and say, what time is it? You'd say, now, now, where am I? Here, here. Then go back to sleep, get up at nine tomorrow. Where am I? Here, what time is it? Now, try 4.32 three weeks from next Thursday. By God, it is, there's no way getting away from it. That's the way it is. That's the eternal present. You finally figure out that it's only the clock that's going around. It's doing its thing, but you, you're sitting here right now, always. If you could go into a meditation room, close up your ears, sit down, center, go in, 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 Further in, oh, much further in. Oh, you've just begun. Keep going back in. Don't linger to smell the pretty sunflower. Don't linger to hold on to the ecstasy of bliss. Keep going in behind the senses, behind your thoughts. And if you can go back in far enough, you will see everything you've identified with him. You will see your own personality, your own body, your own life drama. It's very awesome. The point is we have gone out and out and out, and we have sought and sought and found much, but it hasn't been enough. And now by merely turning the process inward, you go in and in and in until you come to the place where the guru sits. It's very powerful. Some passages from Be Here Now by Ram Dass. We're going to close out the episode with a message from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. A message to our neighbors. Boom, 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 boom. This podcast is brought to you by Israel's Ministry of Defense. Shalom. Thank you for listening. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Malaychuk, that's my last name, at M-A-L-E-J-C-Z-U-K. The crypto boom has been happening the last few weeks, maybe it's a bit of a drop right now, but the studio boom is just around the corner, so 
Continue telling your friends about this. That really helps with the numbers. Give it a rating. Give it a review. That helps with the algorithm. And thank you so much for listening. This is The Studio with Christoph Malachuk.